When we share our stories with one another, we inspire each other. We help each other to grow. We also help one another to feel less alone. I'm Amanda Solar. I'm the host of Soulful Connections, and I'm the founder of SoulfulLiving.com. Join me and let's connect. Connection. A quick warning, this episode contains discussions of PTSD and the depiction of traumatic events. Listener discretion is advised. Now, Larry Glick is with me today uh, on the Soulful Connections podcast, and I'm really happy, Larry, that you are willing to speak with me because you know so many things about so many issues that are topical today. But first and foremost, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Amanda. Um, You know, before we get started, can you share with me, I know you have a background in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Can you share where did that begin and what is that background? How did you start out? Well, it's kind of interesting. It's been a long time ago. I started out as a uh, police officer in 1972 in Upper Bucks in Tennecum Township. And uh, from there, I went and became a police officer in Ocala, Florida, where I actually had my first uh, uh, experience with an actual police academy. Up until about 1974, 75, Pennsylvania didn't have the police officer standards uh, enacted in the state. So you could get hired without having to go to the academy uh, prior to that. But my first academy uh, experience was in Ocala, Florida, in the Ocala Police Department. So I spent a few years there. Uh, my wife, Denise, who was born and raised in New Jersey, uh, we got married, moved to Florida, started my police job down there. And we were good for about three years. And then we moved back home. We moved back up here to Pennsylvania. But it really wasn't until probably around 83, 1983, uh, that we moved out west and I became a federal officer for the Department of Energy's Nuclear Safeguards Division. And it's kind of interesting. People go, huh? You know, what's that all about? And yeah. uh, well, it was kind of interesting in about right around 1982, the RAND Corporation, big organization out of Washington, D.C., developed a threat assessment for our nuclear weapons complex, because back in the early and mid-80s, we were at the height of, you know, producing nuclear weapons, trying to compete with Russia and stuff. But what happened, the RAND threat assessment basically postulated or said our weapons facilities are vulnerable to an attack by a terrorist organization between 12 and 14 individuals. So what happened then, 
the Department of Energy initiated a very aggressive uh, training program for special response team personnel, similar to SWAT personnel. And I was hired at the Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant where I was a security inspector. And then I became a commander of a 30 person special weapons and tactics unit that our sole mission was to protect Rocky, Rocky Mountain or Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant. And what was interesting wow. about, well, I mean, what was interesting about Rocky Flats at that time, it stored almost three quarters of the world's plutonium. Wow. Yeah. So it was a wow. pretty significant site. Um, yeah. But that's really uh, where I received all my formal training in special weapons and tactics. Uh, I later went on in 1987, I was invited to teach at their academy in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So we moved from Colorado to New Mexico, where I became a senior tactics and firearms instructor. And uh, that, was a, that was another great experience because it gave me an opportunity to train uh, and, and offer training to some of the, uh, you know, largest police departments around the country. And uh, it was very interesting. So that's kind of, that's kind yeah. of where we're at in, in the late eighties and early nineties. Had you always grown up wanting to be a police officer? Was that a childhood dream? Well, uh, we had members in our family that were police officers. I think my cousin, uh, he worked for Dalstown Borough Police Department at the time back in 72. And he was a big inspiration for me to become involved mm -hmm. in, in policing. Um, I went to, uh, I graduated from Palisades High School in 1970 and went on to East Stroudsburg State College after I graduated because I wanted to become a phys ed major. And that lasted about a year until my money ran out. Yeah. And you know, like, like, yeah. a lot of, like a lot of kids, you know, and uh, relatable. came back, worked, went to the community college, took the criminal justice program there. But yeah, I've had a, a very rewarding career in my time at, you know, in law enforcement and, and the criminal justice program in general. You know how you said, um, you said that they didn't have like the police academy prior to a certain year, is that is That's that right, right? When, I, when I was hired in 72 by the Tinicum Township Board of Supervisors, it was, you know, they advertised, if you wanna become a police officer, come to the township meeting, Tuesday night, 7 p.m. And I went, I went to that uh, uh, meeting and there was uh, two other, or one other individual there. And we were like the only people in this township meeting and they got to that point on the agenda and they said, okay, we have to hire a couple of police officers. Anybody interested? And, you know, myself and another fellow uh, who was a very close friend of mine raised our hand and they said, okay, we're going to go in an executive session and we'll go back and uh, interview you. So they interviewed each of us and, you know, they had some really good questions, but, you know, were you ever arrested? Obviously, uh, no, you have a driver's license. And one of the supervisors at the time said to me, I know you, uh, you played soccer with my son at Palisades High School. I said, I did. 
And uh, at the end of the meeting, I was hired. And, uh, you know, it was one of those, okay, report, you know, on such and such a day. Uh, they asked me if I had my own firearm. Uh, but oh they basically they gave you a set of keys. They gave you a, a credit slip for the uh, Perkasy police, uh, police office, you know, police uniform place. And you went, and, wow. you know, and then you ended up, in a car with no training whatsoever. And, wow. uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. And, um, yeah, it's just the so, way it was. So do you feel, I mean, cause you're kind of thrown into it then. And, and honestly, even I'm thinking after the police Academy, you know, how do you properly equip somebody to deal with the things that you deal with and see as a police officer? Well, it's a really good question. You know, I think it uh, takes a certain type of person to be a police officer. Um, it's interesting to see now, a couple of generations later, the police officers that are hired. Um, back when I became a police officer, and I think up through the 80s and uh, early 90s, there was a different type of person that applied to be a police officer. But mid-90s on, um, police departments recruited uh, individuals with four-year degrees. Um, they knew it was a great salary uh, at that time. When I got hired, I got paid $4.25 an hour. Oh, my uh, Lord. But, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think it takes a certain type of individual to be a police officer. Uh, one of my... Uh, real interest is PTSD in our, in our emergency responders. And that would include police, fire, and EMS. Because, uh, you know, if you spend any time as a police officer, you see a lot of good things and you see a lot of bad things. And what I would I probably call cumulative PTSD. So you may go to a traffic accident and see a fatality or you may respond to a call and see somebody shot. But over the years, that, that single event may not affect you. You may think about it. But if you're exposed to that every day throughout a career, at some point, it's going to catch up with you. And that's uh, one of the other projects that uh, I started to get involved in. But it's a very controversial pro uh, project within law enforcement because not many states identify PTSD as a disability. Uh, I think probably maybe 15 or 20 states, maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I uh, found out when I was talking to chiefs of police, while they're all, you know, understand PTSD and police officers, um, they were very reluctant to participate because they saw it as, oh my gosh, you know, if I have an officer that goes out on disability for PTSD, I lose an officer, it's going to cost me money, you know, and it's just the way it is. But the PTSD is, you know, one of my pet projects that I a work great on. project. Yeah. Yeah, Probably, that's really uh, good because even if you did something where you all along had some sort of therapeutic program, mm -hmm. you know, all the way along so that you were kind of supporting the officer throughout even you know so 
without waiting for the cumulative PTSD, but then still have that as part of the pro program because yeah. it seems as though you, you need it all the way through. Right. Well, what uh, I know we'll eventually get to the topic on the school shootings, but sure. you can just imagine the officers that have that responded to Columbine, Parkland, Aurora, Sandy Hook, now Texas. I mean, um, they've seen some really gruesome sights. And, right. uh, and how and do you're we... talking about children. That's right. Exactly. So Larry, let's go into that. You, so just to tell you, I, um, my first kind of connection with you came because we were, I designed a, or I wrote for a magazine and I saw that you were the head of, I think it was National Tactical Officers Association. That's right. And I remember seeing that magazine laid out when I right. was working on my magazine. Um, so, you know, can you talk a little bit about how that came to be? And also, um, you had mentioned before that you were uh, called in for expert testimony in some in some sense with Columbine. Is that yes. do I have that right? Yeah. Well, let me give you. I'll give you a, a brief background on that. In nineteen uh, ninety three or ninety two, I took over as the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. And that association was a nonprofit, and it was designed to provide a communications link between special weapons and tactics or SWAT officers, hostage negotiators, bomb techs. Uh, it was a very specialized group of police, you know, policemen, police mm -hmm. men and women. Um, then from 92 to probably 99, uh, we worked at developing training courses for SWAT, just SWAT officers, just special operations people. But then uh, I, I vividly remember the day uh, of the Columbine shooting in April 1999. And, uh, and in fact, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, shortly after that interview with Ed Bradley on 60 Minutes. There's a great show that if you Google it, um, I think on YouTube, well, if you go to YouTube, it's the uh, 60 Minutes Columbine Report. It's about an hour long show that really uh, addressed the issues of Cleveland Harris parents, you know, the, the parents that lost um, kids in school at the shooting and stuff. Uh, so I got involved there, but as an association, uh, we we knew that we had to change some of the tactics that police use to respond to those types of shootings. Uh, so we implemented a active shooter training program, but it wasn't only for SWAT officers, it was for all police officers. So right around shortly after 1999 in Columbine, uh, our program went national. We were training hundreds, perhaps thousands of police officers, regular patrol officers, on how to respond to an active shooter. Uh, but one of the things we did mention uh, during that time, and many people don't realize this, but most SWAT teams in the United States, and even today, are part-time. And what I mean by part-time is that, you know, there's not a dedicated unit at the station, there's not a dedicated SWAT team at the station ready to respond to an incident. 
their officers are out on patrol. They may have their ballistic vest and their weapons in their trunk of the car. But, uh, but our program was designed to pretty much rewrite the way we respond to active shooters. Uh, and you probably have heard or heard mention about the tactics used in the Texas response. You know, there's a lot, yes. of, confusion, there's a lot of confusion. Why yes. did they rush in? And uh, in all honesty, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole uh, program in itself on how officers respond. Because uh, I became uh, very friendly with the officers that responded to the Columbine High School shooting. We actually went out, we interviewed them. Uh, I did, I was called as a witness for the governor's commission on Columbine to talk about SWAT training and police officer training. Um, but uh, those officers that initially responded to Columbine were outgunned. I mean, they didn't have uh, long guns or assault weapons. They had their handguns. Uh, and then by the time the SWAT team arrived, like not only one SWAT team, but about five SWAT teams in the area, Jefferson County, Denver Metro, Aurora, Lakeland, uh, they all responded, but they responded uh, to, the, to what they believed were maybe more than three or four suspects inside the school. So, and they're all, they were all well-trained. They all had plenty of training, but they were trained to establish a perimeter and set up a very methodical, systematic approach to clear the building and find the suspects. Um, now that's all changed. You know, the first couple officers on the scene, shots fired, active shooter, they go in. You know, they immediately respond, go in. Uh, and they don't wait for backup and they don't wait for some of the other traditional uh, uh, response strategies. But it was interesting that, uh, you know, uh, after Columbine, uh, we thought that that was like a one-off. Yes. And, and here we are today, you know, just right. Managing. Can I just in, interrupt and just ask you, and I hate to ask this question, so I'll, I'll give a little warning before we, we, we do the podcast, but um, for people who don't know or can't remember, what, when we say Columbine, are we talking about? Yeah. Well, it was the Columbine High School shooting, uh, April 1999 in Littleton, Colorado. It was Jefferson, uh, Jefferson County, uh, Colorado. And that's where two armed suspects, Thebold and Harris, had planned well in advance their assault really on the high school during, during a regular class day. And, uh, and as a result of that, I believe 13 lives were lost. Uh, the teacher, Mr. Sanders, that was a very controversial um, uh, part of the investigation because the police didn't go in, he was shot, he was bleeding to death. The students actually posted a sign on the window to tell police that he was inside and needed immediate medical attention. Uh, but here's the interesting, well, it's not interesting, but 
people need to realize that Columbine High School had over 250,000 square feet of classrooms, okay? Uh, Cleveland Harris, the suspects, uh, had initiated several pipe bombs that set off the sprinkler systems, the fire alarms were going off, the place wow. was flooded. Uh, so it was a very, uh, you know, uh, very tough situation to face as a police officer. Yeah, very good. And they were teenagers themselves. They yes. were students themselves. They were yeah. students. Right. So you're right. I remember when it happened and everybody was horrified, shocked, determined. It felt like to never, to take steps that this should never happen right. again. And now when there's a school shooting, it doesn't even dominate the media. Yeah, the anymore. news cycle. Yeah, just, you know, it's yeah. I I understand. So, you know, what? I'm. I know there's not just an answer to it, but what are your thoughts about it? I know you have some. You know, some thoughts. Yeah. Well, you know, I look back after the Texas shooting, and I said to myself, you know, Columbine, 22 years later. What have we learned? Yeah. And, you know, one might say, well, we haven't learned anything. Well, I think we have. But part of uh, our training program at the National Tactical Officers Association not only addressed teaching the police officers how to respond, a whole new way to respond. Uh, we also developed a safe schools program. And that safe schools program was an educational seminar that involved all stakeholders. And uh, throughout my tenure at the NQA after Columbine, uh, I would speak in those terms. We have to get all the stakeholders involved in combating uh, these types of mass shootings. Um, I did draw some controversy and people should understand that the chances of a police department or a police officer Stopping an active shooter it initially is slim to none. I mean, schools are soft targets. Now, granted, we have uh, increased physical security at schools, but um, there's just a variety of ways that somebody, they're either inside the school already, or they can enter a school and, and kill a number of people before the police even respond. Um, you know, the average response time for SWAT teams back in the late uh, 1990s, 2000, uh, would take about 45 minutes. Now we have police officers that respond in two or three minutes, and they've hopefully been trained in active shooter response, so they go in right away. So, um, so another... A question for you that's a con speaking of it's all controversy when we talk right. about this and it seems as though it's so heated that one of the problems in my view is that we're not really talking and we do need to kind of talk and communicate varying viewpoints if we want I think to get at this enormous problem because it's not just um it's not just about one thing, you That's know? Right. So the first thing I hear when it comes to stopping 
school shootings or even active shootings because it's not just about schools it's also you know people talk about malls and right. i know my daughter now my youngest when we're in a certain restaurant sometimes she will say i'm really nervous in here i really don't feel comfortable yeah. you know and it's a shame you know uh, i've never used to think that when i was 13 right um so is the answer controlling guns as people talk about is it about assault weapons is it about mental health is it about in a restaurant do you prepare the you know waitresses well, well it's really well you're right about it we need to have a discussion in our safe schools program i mentioned stakeholders and the stakeholders basically you know it's a, you know a number of different groups of people you know it's police fire ems school teachers school administrators uh school boards um you know parents and kids i mean in our programs that we offered we we took a little criticism sometimes because we'd hold a seminar and we told parents to bring their kids to it because you know they they really are the eyes and ears on the ground you're in, yeah. you're in a long hallway you're in your locker and you see the kid next you know in the locker next to you have a handgun you want to empower that kid to go ahead and report it I mean, that's, that's just, just makes sense. But um, yeah, we need to have a conversation. And what happens is that uh, each one of those elements, police, fire, EMS, school boards, you know, school teachers, parents, uh, they're sort of, you know, uh, put in a box and there's no interaction between them. Uh, one of the things we did when we uh, started our training program is we encouraged schools to meet with the police, have walkthroughs so the police were familiar with the schools, you know, knew what the doors were locked, you know, what doors locked, what doors didn't. Um, likewise, fire and, and EMS. Um, we invited parents to sit down and, you know, have a conversation about those warning signs at home. Uh, you mentioned guns, you know, guns and assault rifles. You know, it's, it's a very controversial subject. And uh, and I will tell you this, arming teachers is not the answer. Okay, that is the, oh, right. that's the craziest dang thing. Oh, I've my Lord. I, I so agree. I mean, the thought of it, right? It's hard enough to be a teacher. <laughs> that's right. But to expect this teacher to be a police officer and then you know a, an armed guard and an educator and you know it's it's kind of amazing you know and i i i've heard all sorts of different suggestions and some of them are thought-provoking and some of them are outlandish but i guess maybe one of the first steps we need to do is to converts like you're saying to gather the people what do you think larry should a parent if there's a parent listening i'm sure there are what's the step that you can take as a parent well the parent you know you had uh, you had mentioned earlier about you know what would be my vision or what would be yes 
what would uh, I like to see happen in the world? It's really like a call to action. It's, you know, really to uh, uh, instill activism in the parents. The parents have every right to go to a school. Well, first, they have every right to call their school, talk to the principal and say, look, I'm sure you have safety protocols, safety plans in place, but could you tell me what they are? Now, there's, there was immediate pushback after Columbine. Because we had some parents in this school district uh, call me and say, well, what should we do? I said, well, the first thing you should do is just call the principal and ask mm -hmm. them about, you know, how are they keeping your child safe? And uh, two of the parents called me back and said that the, the school told me to you know, basically mind my own business. They have it under control. Now, that's not very reassuring to a parent. But I think, you know, parents have a right. They have a right to call their chief of police and say, look, you know, my child goes to this school that's in your jurisdiction. Can you tell me if you're prepared or not to respond? You know, it's about making, you know, the parents more informed. Yeah. You know, is it, do we have open access to the schools um, from a school security standpoint? Are the doors locked uh, after, you know, all the kids are in, you know, locked from, you know, so nobody can get in yes. from the outside uh, because you can't lock the doors from the inside. Uh, but, you know, a, a question would be, you know, do, do our doors, our door, classroom doors have locks on them? You know, uh, how often... How often uh, is there a teachers in service where there is a discussion about what if this happens? Now, all schools are required um, to have emergency plans in place, but most of those emergency response plans are really geared to natural disasters, like weather situations, mm -hmm. tornadoes, and that. But there's a component of that, it's called man made. And that would be your active shooter or a parent shows up with a gun. I mean, it doesn't have to be an active shooter, but what do you do if a parent right. shows up with a gun? What do you do if, you know, if you find a gun on a kid, even though he's not an active shooter? So I think the parents have a right to not only question the school, but question their police on what was their response? How, when was the last time uh, XYZ department's officers did a walkthrough through the school. Were they, uh, was their police department ever allowed to train it, an act, do active shooter training in the school? Uh, we were very lucky uh, when we initiated our program, uh, the superintendent of the school, school district I lived in gave us full access to the school. And we created a number of training videos that were distributed throughout the country uh, on active shooter response. But uh, it's really important. I, you know, this whole, you know, if you want to keep your kids safe or ensure that other people are staying on top of it, you just have to become an activist. You have no. to, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm glad that you're talking about this, Larry, and I'm glad you're committed to this, and I'm glad that you're pursuing this. And I will also tell you, 
it is also boggling my mind still that we it's we have this discussion it's it it it, it blows my mind that we are living in a world where just sending our kids to school is dangerous you know it's just it really mm. is well it is and, you know it's, it's really it, it is shocking uh but one of the things we found you know throughout the country after columbine was that we would talk to people and they would say it'll never happen here and you know if you have that mindset you know it's never going to happen here you shouldn't you know you shouldn't be a principal you shouldn't be a you know a school board member, you know, you shouldn't even be a policeman if that's the way you think, because it can happen. You know, there's over 400 million guns in the United States. And I know we, you know, uh, we, we want to stay away from, you know, the controversial issues about Second Amendment rights. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that 18-year-olds uh, shouldn't be able to buy an assault weapon. That's just, it, it just feels such like such a basic statement, Larry. I can't even believe that's controversial. Well, it is because I mean we have. Uh, such, Think about an eighteen-year-old. Uh, well, you know I'm a I'm a hunter and yeah. uh, hunt and fish and uh, I uh, I enjoy the shooting sport. Um, I remember one time I addressed a group of. Uh, uh, Fish and Game Association people, and uh, there are probably about fifty people in, in the uh, group when I uh, address them, and uh, I started talking about we have a responsibility as a gun owner to make sure we secure our guns. So you know, kids, you know, little kids get shot all the time by, you know, the handgun that was loaded in the drawer. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the moment I, and now these are all gun enthusiasts. Right. They were all Second Amendment enthusiasts. Right. And the moment I said that we have a responsibility to secure a gun, hands went up in the audience and said, oh, you want to arrest us because we don't have a gun safe. And I said, I didn't say that. I said, you have a responsibility, you know, and they just completely went to, now you want to take my guns away. You want to mm -hmm. promote, you know, and it's just amazing how, uh, how. Uh, reactive. It, reactive yeah. It's kind of like this reaction. You know, I was thinking as you were talking too, because there is a lot of reactivism. You talked about activism. Well, I also just see a lot of reactivism. If, I don't even know if that's a word I might have just made it up, but that's what I'm seeing. And it's just people are reacting. And Larry, what's interesting to me about you, because you have this law enforcement background and often general, very generally speaking, I see so much reaction in the law enforcement arena when people have this discussion. There's yeah. almost like a cloak comes over, like, do not talk about this. Do not address it. Don't talk about PTSD. Don't talk about gun. It, it's a lot. You seem to be, you know, a deeper, a deep thinker is what I'm getting. Even beyond just law enforcement, you do seem to think about 
things on a deeper level? Is that because, like, where does that come from? Are you a reader or your parents deep thinkers? Did you always question things? Well, honestly, I've experienced a lot in my life, okay? Um, I experienced a lot as a police officer. I experienced a lot in my personal life. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, some tragedies that we had to deal with and work through. Um, you know, I, I always thought, you know, there's always two sides of the story. And, uh, and you have to, you know, you have to understand both sides before you can, you know, address the issue. Uh, but with this whole school safety thing, uh, I think it's important for people, you know, there are, there are a lot of subject matter experts out there that can talk about school security, physical security. There's a lot of experts out there that can talk about uh, school policies, safety policies. There's experts out there that can talk about um, police response and what the expectation is. Um, but there are not a whole lot of people out there that uh, can talk to and involve all these stakeholders again, okay? Yeah. Bringing a group together in one auditorium, all these stakeholders, and go through each of them so everybody understands what the role may be and what some of the obstacles are. So it's just about getting an understanding of, mm -hmm. of what's going on here. Uh, because gone are the days where, uh, you know, you just, you know, the police do their thing over here, schools do their right. thing over here. You have to remember that uh, historically, at least it's in my opinion, police were never embraced with open arms when they had to respond to a school incident. You know, whether they found, you know, the school found drugs or whatever. It was just never that open relationship. You know, I can remember yeah. responding to a school uh, where they, you know, they, a student had uh, a knife and the principal met me at the front steps and said, uh, we got it all under control. You're like, really? You know, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. So historically, there's been some separation there. Yeah. You know, and we need I to bring that, that back together. We need to bring, yeah. you know, uh, school board members need to attend these seminars, these safe schools programs, because they're the ones that actually hold the purse strings to budgets and money and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're about to spend probably billions on some of this new legislation on school physical security. But you would think that 22 years later, one of the major issues in Columbine was some of the doors could not be locked, that every school today would have a door that could be locked from the inside. You know, but, there, but there's not. I mean, no, I'm sure I know. there's school, schools out there. But that's, that's the challenge to the parent, you know, to ask, do our schools have locks do you, you know on their doors do you know again i'll just repeat myself do, do you let the police come in and train do you have in-service uh training for teachers uh the last in-service training session i gave on safe schools 
was in 2019 in Montgomery County. And I was invited to come over to talk to 100 teachers in August before they went back to school about school safety. And we and there was a, it was an open discussion. I didn't say, okay, you got to do this, you got to do that. You know, you know, I called upon my experience uh, to let the teachers know that you know you got to be on you got to be on guard here. You know, you got to be alert. You have to encourage kids to you know talk to the kids, encourage them, encourage them to report things. You know, because really uh, that's one of the ways you get out ahead of uh, a school shooting. More questions about this, Larry. One is, what do you do when they say no? They don't lock from the inside <laughs> because the truth is, a lot of them don't. Then what do you do? Well, you call up your local newspaper. Yeah. And just say, hey, I just spoke to you know so and so at the school, and they're telling me that you know there's no locks in the classroom doors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then you go to a school board meeting. I mean, uh, you know, school board meetings uh, can be very contentious. Because yes. there's a lot going on in school board meetings these days. Oh uh, yeah, beyond, beyond schools, beyond the safe yeah. schools, you know. And uh, but you know, there are parents out there that are concerned about their kids' safety. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you know, not that you would go into a restaurant and ask for the restaurant restaurant manager and say, "What are you doing to protect us in case a, a mass shooter comes in?" <laughs> but it, but but. But in large venues, uh, you should be able to do that, you know, yeah. especially schools. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you what you're talking about is collaboration. And it does seem that that is a huge challenge right now because we live in a contentious world that I don't know if it's true, but it feels like it's never been more contentious. Oh, you're right. It is. You know. I feel and that I, way. Right? I mean... You know, the discuss there's really, I, I can say that they're not really discussing things. They're just yelling and there's a lot of fear and anger. But I think what you're saying, Larry, is that these are our kids and, right. you know, they're at risk. And we have to figure out from every angle, whether it's legislatively, whether it's just in the school, whether it's as a parent, we all really do need to come together and figure out how we can make our kids, our children safe. Yeah. Well, one of the things too, you had mentioned earlier about mental health. Um, we as a country have done a horrible job, absolutely horrible job addressing uh, the mental health issues uh, yeah. of today. And, um, and, you know, we, they've cut back on counselors in schools, um, you know, and to be quite honest with you, I only know of a couple of departments, police departments right now, that require their officers to go through a periodic psychological evaluation to see if they're still up to, you know, being a police officer. Of course, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so we have some real challenges there. But, you know, again, I, I, I firmly believe if we, if we get all these people together and, you know, we, we promote their activism, that it would make a difference. Okay, I have, I have an, another question for you. So here you are. What was your, you, you're, you're, well, you have a business too. Yes, I do. Right, you're an entrepreneur. Yep. So you have a business, you have the closet shop, which is a thriving business. 
you have been in the political arena, you've been, you know, in the, um, in the SWAT and law enforcement arena. What compels you to even have this discussion right now? Why are you not sitting back, Larry, with a margarita (laughs) (laughs) and just kind of relaxing? What is that about? Well, I've always been very active, number one, but you know, people asked me 20 years ago, um, what are you going to do when you retire? And, you know, they always say, well, you, you don't re- retire from something, you retire to something. And my idea, when I, after I left the NTOA in 2003, was uh, that I was just going to do some consulting work and hang out, you know, um, and do different things and enjoy life. But, you know, you can only do so much consulting. And, uh, and I actually started my business by accident uh, as a part-time business that, you know, it was completely removed from the past 35 years of my life, my professional life. It was about installing, you know, closets and closet shelving. And I did it part-time. And, uh, and then, as you mentioned, I, I did get involved politically. Um, I forget what year, I think it was a 2008. I ran for state rep. And while I was running for state representative, I met a, uh, a very bright young man by the name of Patrick Murphy. He was running for Congress. And uh, we knocked on some doors together. We developed a friendship. And uh, uh, came election day. And then the next morning after election day, I lost by 1,800 votes. And he won by like 1,500 votes. And he called me up and said, Hey, buddy, you know, sorry, you know, it was close. Uh, I only won by 1,500. I said, well, you know, congratulations, you're our new congressman. And he said, well, why don't you come to work for me? I said, why would I, you know, what would I do for you, you know? And he said, you can be my outreach director. And I said, hmm, it took me about five minutes because I was at the point in my life, you know, I did, I said, does it mean I have to go to Washington? And he said, no, no, you can work. You can work in the district. I said, okay, I'll take the job. And uh, I spent four years with with the congressman. And it was one of the most rewarding times, second to my law enforcement background. But I learned a lot about people and politics. And, you know, and um, it was a real eye opener. But one of the things that I enjoyed the most uh, was being able to solve people's problems. I mean, uh, when you really look at it from a legislative uh, perspective or from a citizen to a representative perspective, you know, uh, as a congressman, we had access to all the administrative offices like VA and, and uh, you know, veterans, VA, mentioned that, uh, what else that comes to my mind? Department of Transportation issues and things like that. And um, it was uh, gratifying to know that you could call one of those departments and actually have somebody answer on the other side, at the other end, and then work to solve a problem. Uh, And I really enjoyed that because we did solve a lot of problems or help people out. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I really enjoyed that. I don't miss it now because it's so, you know, uh, 
it's so politically charged now. Oh, right. Stuff, but, but I did yeah. enjoy it. So if you had a magic wand and you could change the world, what would be the change that you would make? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting question. Uh, well, first, I think that, uh, you know, we, we grossly underestimate the poverty that we have in this country. Uh, we, we ignore some uh, key uh, issues uh, with homeless, with the homeless people, uh, just because where we live, Oh my God! You know, you know, you don't, you don't see people sitting along the sidewalk or begging out for a Starbucks, but it's there. I mean, it's, uh, and I think that, Absolutely. I think um, the, I would, see, you know, when you use inequity, when you use the word inequity, from my perspective, you know, people right away go to, you know, well, you know, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, right. and work and stuff, blah blah blah. But uh, there are so many people out there that are homeless uh, that, or if they have a home, they can't afford their, you know, pay their electric bill uh, or their heating bill in the winter time. Um, it's just, we need to do better. Uh, and I guess I would use the word uh, promoting humanity. You know, have have some humanity yeah. and some empathy. Uh, so if I could wave my wand over, you know, over an area or over the world, it would be that um, we would have a we would have programs, meaningful programs, uh, to bring these people, bring these homeless and disadvantaged people back into the fold. Yeah, that's what. It is. Wonderful. I think that's really a perfect spot to end. I, I wish I could get, I wish you had a magic wand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much, Larry. I think that's a great um, ending point for today. Maybe we'll have to do this again because we talked yeah. about some yeah. big issues. I would love to, you know, discuss Zero in more. On. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you. Okay. Well, you take care now. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening. Giant thank you goes out to show advisor, Roseanne Griffiths, the talented musician, Bill Aronson, who wrote, produced, performed the Soulful Connections theme song. And a thank you goes out to Brad Sanders for creating the Soulful Connections logo. Love it. That's new this year. So much gratitude to these guys and to my friends and family who continue to listen and guide me. And once again, to you for listening. I would love to hear from you. Please shoot me an email at soulfullife at gmail.com. That's S-O-L-F-U-L-L-I-F-E at gmail.com.